and welcome to What is California, a podcast featuring conversations with notable Californians in a quest to understand the Golden State. I'm your host, Stu Van Earsdale. On this episode, we welcome Baratunde Thurston. Baratunde is the host and creator of the podcast How to Citizen, as well as a founding partner of the website Puck and the author of the best-selling book, How to Be Black, which celebrates its 10th anniversary this week, just in time for Black History Month. So happy Black History Month to everybody. Uh, Happy Lunar New Year to those who celebrate. And happy February. How can it be February already? I feel like we were just uh, talking about New Year's. And uh, here we are on Groundhog Day as I record this. Did the groundhog see its shadow? Where are we at with winter? Someone help me out with that. I don't know. All I know is it's Mercury retrograde right now, and I'm feeling it. Uh, Mercury is retrograding all over my life, making a huge mess. So, um, yeah, I've had just about enough of that. In any case, uh, the good news is that the podcast last week with Dr. Daniel Swain uh, was our second most listened to ever behind the podcast premiere with Governor Jerry Brown. A lot of people listened last week and a lot of people shared that. And there were a lot of responses on social media in particular. So thank you to everyone who listened, who shared, who responded. And thank you if you've returned. If you are back for this episode and if you have followed or subscribed wherever you get your podcasts or on Substack with our newsletter, that is awesome. I'm so grateful for you. And I'm glad that, you know, we can all kind of try to answer this question together. What is California? It's not rhetorical. We're trying to get to the bottom of this one week, one interview, one conversation at a time. And your feedback and your response matters. So thank you very much. So this week's guest is Baratunde Thurston. And Baratunde is someone I first encountered when he spoke with Mark Marin on the WTF podcast, probably, gosh, I'm guessing maybe six years ago, five, six years ago. I wish I had the date in front of me, but it was a while back. And I remember being on Highway 99 or maybe I-5 driving south on my way to cover something or other. And you know that was the latest episode. And I thought, hmm, that sounds interesting. Listen to that. And I was riveted with Baratunde's take on everything from politics to popular culture. His background, uh, you know, he attended Harvard and he has done everything from stand-up comedy to writing for The Onion and The Daily Show. Uh, He has obviously written a memoir, a bestseller. It's kind of a memoir slash social commentary called How to Be Black. And that came out 10 years ago this week, which is pretty amazing. So happy anniversary to Baratunde and his book. And... In the time since I heard that original interview uh, with Baratunde on WTF, he has also delivered a very widely seen TED Talk. He has issued a technology manifesto. He has launched two podcasts, including a kind of limited run podcast called We're Having a Moment in 2020, which chronicled the social and racial justice protests that followed the murder of George Floyd trying to understand what that moment meant as a racial reckoning in the United States. How to Citizen, meanwhile, is Baratunde's podcast. It just finished its third season in December, and it's exactly what it sounds like. It it kind of regards the word citizen as a verb and how all of us can engage more with the prospect and the idea and the theory and, of course, the practice of citizenship in the United States. What does that exactly mean and how does it interface with our political lives? 
our cultural lives, our technological lives. In fact, season three of How to Citizen is specifically about that interface between technology and citizenship. And of course, technology having arisen largely and continuing to arise from Silicon Valley that makes technology and citizenship a uniquely California story. So I thought I'd bring Baratunde on to talk about that phenomenon. And he's also a founding partner of the website Puck, which is a news and commentary site that launched in 2021 and focuses on the intersections of power in Washington, D.C., New York, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood in particular. And so, of course, we have uh, two of the four kind of power vectors uh, that Puck focuses on right here in California. And Baratunde is an astute observer of those kind of power corridors in California. And he's not even a native Californian. He, I believe, has you know lived here off and on. Uh, over the years. And he he settled here. He tells us in the conversation, I think right before the pandemic, maybe a year before the pandemic, you'll hear all about what that experience was like, as well as what holds up from his book, How to Be Black, 10 years after publication. We'll talk about his upcoming PBS show called America Outdoors. Very excited about that. We'll talk about some of the Californians who have influenced him over the years, as well as his favorite Californian. Stay tuned for that. And um, if you have questions, feedback, comments, suggested guests, uh, you name it, get in touch with me. Hello at whatiscalifornia.com. You can follow us on Twitter at whatcalifornia. And of course, feel free to subscribe to the What is California newsletter on Substack. It is free. It'll get you a new podcast episode every Thursday and a weekend links newsletter featuring a roundup of cool California stories that you might have missed over the week. And that is available at whatiscalifornia.substack.com. Again, free to subscribe, and I hope you'll check it out. You can go to the show notes for this episode for links to all of the topics that we cover. And yeah, let's get to it. Here is me and Baratunde Thurston on What is California? Enjoy. Baratunde Thurston, welcome to What is California? It's so great to have you here. I want to get into your very packed resume, but uh, first let's talk about your California story. I know you're from Washington, D.C. originally, but how and when did you become a Californian? I think I've been trying to become a Californian for a big chunk of my life. I'm, uh, I'm 44 now as we speak, and I first thought I was going to become a Californian when I graduated college. And I came out here to do a job interview in, uh, up in the Bay Area, uh, Silicon Valley. And it was so beautiful, I was overwhelmed. I actually, I remember visiting Stanford's campus. I was like, oh, college could look like this? Why did no one tell me there was the sun you could have access to on a regular basis? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, so I, right after college, I didn't end up taking that job. I stayed on the East Coast. Uh, I came out here in 2014 for a woman and a job. Oh, and uh, I got here, and within a week, uh, the woman had broken up with me, and within a month, the job uh, disappeared. It was a TV hosting job. The show was canceled. The network was canceled. It was oh, like a man. It was like really trying to. People were trying to get me up out of California. Oh no! But, uh, so I went back to New York, and uh, oddly enough, the the woman that I came here for, we're married now. 
So that wow. worked out. <laughs> yes. Okay, okay, cool. And you're in California. And I'm like, she came back to New York <laughs> with me, and we lived there together for four years. And she had been lobbying, working on me. I mean, just a long con, but if it's not a con, if the con is real, then it's not a con. It's just like a long mm-hmm. sale. And she was like, I don't know. I think you're going to like California. I like California. In fact, I can't really stand this New York thing. I'm like, but it's the greatest city in the world. How could you not love New York? It's the best. <laughs> right, you have right, to right, fight right. for everything. She's like, exactly. You have to fight for everything. What if you didn't have to fight for everything? Yeah, so I yeah. came back um, more permanently this time in uh, February of 2019. I'm coming up on my three-year anniversary as a Californian. So what parts of the state have you called home uh, over the years? Home is a fun word. I mean, I live in, in Los Angeles now. So that is that is technically and legally home. Uh, I spend a lot of time out in Palm Springs, and that's starting to feel like home. And I have uh, deep attachments to the Bay Area, the Yay Area. Uh, I actually was uh, I helped create a company, and that company was based in the Mission District. So I didn't live there, but my co-founders did. So I was up in the San Francisco Bay Area all the time, and so I have a lot of fondness for uh, for that part of California as well. So what are your earliest memories, maybe the first, very first earliest Ooh. memory of California, and why do you think that memory stuck with you? <laughs> you know, it's, the first is not the first chronologically, but it is the first memory. Uh, it just came to mind. That works. I was working in Boston, where I stayed for far too long, and I was doing consulting work with telecom companies, and so I was working with Verizon, and I got shipped out here to... Uh, to work with some people for Verizon, like implement some new policy or something. It's very vague. What I remember that's very clear is I rented a, uh, a two-door convertible Sebring, which I thought was like the greatest thing ever. <laughs> I've never driven a convertible in my life. Like, I'm going to LA. I'm getting a convertible. And I drove up. I had to get up to Oxnard. There was a, there was a facility up there we had to get to. And so I drove all up the West Coast, you know, up the highway, on the coastline there. That was a beautiful California memory. Um, And saying that out loud to you unlocks the actual first California memory. With my mother Mm -hmm. as a child, Mm -hmm. we took a two and a half week train trip around the entire United States. So from D.C., west up to Chicago, down to Texas, into Mexico, all the way to the bottom of the Mexican train line, back up over to the U.S. Southwest, fully up the West Coast, Seattle, all the way across the top through Montana, it's back to D.C. And that Californianness. I went to Disneyland. Uh, we got stuck. You know, the train derailed up in Bakersfield. We had to take a, a it bus. derailed in Bakersfield? Uh, not derailed. That's the wrong word. Thank you for... There was a freight train stuck, like disabled, not derailed, oh. this disabled train on the tracks. And so we had to get off our train and take buses to go around it. Oh, man. To continue our northern journey, you know, up to the Pacific Northwest. So that's actually my first California memory is we, my mom and I came to Disney World. We, we arrived at Union Station. Oh, my goodness. It was so beautiful. <laughs> arrived at Union Station. And we were very lower middle class. You know, we saved up for this trip for a long time. And so we weren't renting cars anywhere. We took the bus. Mm-hmm. I remember taking the bus to Disneyland. And riding on the highway in a bus, which I'd never done as a Washingtonian. The buses, buses are city things. You don't take a city yeah. bus on the highway. And so we did the Disneyland thing and then just riding up the coast and having you know, being on a cliff with the ocean to your left, sun setting over the water. Never seen that before. Right, <laughs> right, You're right, on the right, west right. side now. It's very and, strange. And, oh, man. I remember graffiti in the tunnels. 
I remember overhearing the music from the cars passing us on the street. That's my literal first California memory. Thank you for helping me discover that. In my pleasure. And now you've been here for three years in this later latest iteration of yeah. of Californianess, as you say. Uh, <laughs> and you know, you've been here long enough now to see things change a little bit. You know, so what has changed in you know, the part of California where you live, and you know, what have you thought about those changes? Oh man, um, it's got more expensive. <laughs> you know? California's got more expensive, even as a non-resident but frequent visitor over most of my adult life. Mm-hmm. I can feel that price change. I can feel population changing in neighborhoods. And I don't know that it's unique to California. In fact, I'm sure it's not. But it is intense in California, the displacement of people uh, in, in the, from their neighborhoods. You know, I, I sense the presence of white people where they didn't quite used to be. And in some ways, I'm a, I'm a marker of that because I come to California as a pretty high income earner at this point in my life. So I'm, things look affordable to me based on some New York reference that are very high for people who've been here for a long time. So I'm also a part of some of the changes I'm seeing. Um, the speed, you know, I think it's America in general, but California is moving, man. It's moving. And what else feels different over time? The, the politics out here have always intrigued me because y- I still say y'all because I'm still <laughs> I'm new here. But y'all do some funky things politically, you know, with the referenda and, and the ballot measures and all that kind of stuff. We, I didn't really grow up with that in, in Massachusetts and D.C., uh, where I spent most of my younger years. So seeing people vie for political influence, starting to understand how some of the sacramentalness affects the assembly. Specific example, L.A., I'd never seen a state senator want to become a city councilor. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's, uh, what, it's, it's unusual. It's what, called what term are we limits. Doing here? What yeah. are we, I thought, I thought there was up was one direction. I mean, a high school senior is not trying to go back to kindergarten. Like what's, what's, what's happening here? Well, if there's leadership role in kindergarten, they'll go. That's right. And, and, a, and a budget. You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so that's, there's some unique things and I don't know that that's changed within California, but it's changed to me because I'm still pretty new. To, to feeling like I really am a citizen of California. I came here in February 2019, and I lived here for a year before COVID. And during that year, I was gone a lot. I have a highly travel life. So I was doing conferences here and events there, and blah, 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 blah. And we have friends who got married overseas. most of the, And I'm finally ready to be a Californian. And then COVID's like, oh, you're going to be so California, you're not going to leave your home in California. <laughs> so we had this like year of lockdown. And I really didn't start coming out until the summer of 2021. And then it's hits and miss. You know, there's waves with, with every surge, with every variant. So I feel a disjointed sense of connection as a Californian. I feel kind of denied my ability to really become a member of California, like a full resident, a full citizen. So I'm working on it. I feel like sometimes I judge myself. I'm like, I haven't gone to that community meeting yet. I haven't. Well, are they even having them in person? I miss that Zoom. Everything's on Zoom. I don't want to be in Zoom anymore. So to, to those who, um, who are also new to California in this time when it feels hard to attach to the place because COVID has disrupted so much, I'm with you. I feel you. You are not alone. And to those who've been here longer and know a pre-COVID Cali, uh, I'm still excited about the welcome parties. Like we can, we can have those on the other side as it gets safer and safer and safer. Who are some California folks you have kind of looked to who have influenced you, impacted you and who you are over the years, either, you know, in this kind of present iteration or in the past? The, the first Californian I knew 
was a, a college roommate, Zach Norris. He grew up in Oakland. He lives in Oakland now. Uh, he went to Harvard undergrad. That's where we met. He went to uh, law school, became a, a lawyer and a, like a justice fighting lawyer. Mm. And uh, he's the executive director of the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights up in Oakland. So he was my first Californian, but he wasn't directing the Ella Baker Center when I met him. Mm -hmm. He was just so chill. I'd never met anybody so laid back. And I heard about Cali and the laid back style and like the hip hop move more slowly. And it's true. Zach moved more slowly. He contemplated mm -hmm. things. He felt the energy <laughs> in the room. And I was like, well, we got to go, man. What are you waiting for? Let's get up out of here. <laughs> Come on, Zach. Da, 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 da. I had that more than DMX energy. You know what I'm saying? Like, he had the too short energy. Um, so that, that was, uh, I still am, am friends with Zach and, and look up to him as a Californian because of the leadership he's demonstrated in so many ways for some really good causes. Uh, here in L.A., you know, I, I look up to, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm super close to, but I'm an admirer of Kendrick Sampson. Uh, he helped orient me uh, a bit as I got here and plugging into some of the Black Lives Matter stuff and just being made aware of what some of the dynamics are here in Los Angeles. Uh, early California, my first time around, Jacob Soboroff. We hosted a show together. He's an MSNBC correspondent now. The show I mentioned that got canceled and tried right. to drive me out of the state. Mm -hmm. Jacob was a co-host with me. And, and he was so welcoming. He was such a, a, a wonderful, uh, welcoming spirit. My, uh, my state assembly member, Wendy Carrillo, has been very welcoming. And I just, following her on Instagram, has been like, okay, cool. And I talked to her from a little IG pandemic show. And like, I'm a constituent. I got some questions. <laughs> um, and, and the last, you know, it's, it's actually a neighbor um, that I met, John, a former firefighter. He's a black dude here. In, I'm in Highland Park. And uh, it's not the blackest neighborhood in Los Angeles. <laughs> um, it's very pretty diverse, actually. Still very Latin, increasingly white. And there's actually is a growing black population. If my my black people spotting skills are to be believed, I'm definitely seeing more black people. Mm -hmm. Anyway, he's uh, lived here for a long time. And pre-COVID, we were hanging out at the bar and just really getting to know each other. And the pandemic kind of threw a wrench. But I like that that neighborly California vibe. So those are a few Californians I can think of who have uh, affected my uh, impression of the state and made me feel welcome. What about places that have impacted you? It could be, you know, landscapes, terrain, it could be buildings, you know, mm. roads, just any space at all. It, does California and its geography influence yeah. you in any way? I think California is probably the most physically beautiful state in the U.S., the range is out of this world. Like Hawaii is beautiful. I mean, it's, it's gorgeous. And, and New Orleans is culturally like the best thing we got going on. I think it's the best food, the music, the people. You can't really mess with New Orleans and by extension Louisiana. But for beauty and, and range of beauty, California wins for me. So some of my favorite spots, Big Sur. Big Sur, I, I had a, a meal there years ago. Me, a glass of wine, and the sunset, just looking out over the ocean. It was like a date with, with destiny. That sounds all right. Idlewild. Mm -hmm. It snowed the first time I went there. Big, juicy. I was like, oh, this, this is great. This is <laughs> and then the last time I was there, I was with some uh, wildland firefighters, formerly incarcerated firefighters who were finding a path to, to contributing to their communities and being licensed and not just working under the prison umbrella. Uh, of trying to salvage people's homes and humbling, beautiful experience. 
the desert, the Coachella Valley and the high desert right next to it, Joshua Tree, Yucca, uh, Pioneer Town, the rocks. I was never so excited about the color brown. <laughs> I was like younger me, less thoughtful me, less experienced me, like, oh, it's just, it's all brown. Now I can see the shades. I got to visit Death Valley in the past year. It is alive, you and, the, and, the, and then don't get me started on the ocean and the surfing, <laughs> right? <laughs> like I surfed with mad black people up in Topanga, this group called Color the Water. And it was just, the natural environment was really beautiful, but being with beautiful people to help you see it kind of heightens that. So I'm in love with the, with the geology and the ecology of this state. It's really, it's a marvel. I think we're super lucky. And I've spent so much time traveling and so much of my life I haven't come across something as as broad uh, and beautiful as California. Yeah, I guess of all of those, you know, I, it might depend on the person, but yeah. if there was one place that you could take a visitor to California who had never been here, of all those mm. you just mentioned, I mean, would would you choose one specific place based on your interests or kind of like curate it based on the other person? What do you think? I mean, I'm sensitive to other people's uh, needs and desires, but no, this is my tour. So you're coming with me. We're going to the desert. <laughs> well, the, the magic of it is the spot that came to me actually wasn't the desert. It's a little spot in Highland Park called Fiji Hill. Okay. Kind of underwhelming from a grand geology perspective, but what you can see from there is impressive. You got the San Andreas right behind you. You can see, uh, you know, Eagle Rock right up there next to you. And you look, you can see the ocean on a clear day. So you have a view of like city all around you, many cities, actually. Uh, downtown LA, Culver City, Burbank, all right there. You got the, the Griffith Park Observatory within eyesight. So you got a gateway to the stars within your view. You got the Pacific Ocean, which is monstrous. And you got mountain ranges and a clear day, you see Big Bear and snow. So that full experience that I just kind of toured us through, you can see from this one spot and it's super accessible. So I, I think it's a good kind of table of contents place to, to drop somebody. Yeah. And then they can decide, you want to go into the, the desert to the east? You want to go into some snow-capped mountains? You want to go down to the water and splash around with the sharks? Go for it. <laughs> I love that. Let's talk about your work a little bit. You have a unique yeah. resume in both activism and comedy. Uh, and even journalism, I mean, from stand-up to The Onion to The Daily Show, as well as hosting TV series, as you mentioned, obviously podcasts, um, essays, manifestos. Um, you've advised the Obama administration. You wrote a bestseller. And you, of course, delivered a very widely viewed TED Talk. So is, am I forgetting anything? I mean, <laughs> you've reminded me of things I forgot about. I love that you... You said journalism, and then you cited two satirical news outlets, The Onion and The Daily Show. I appreciate that one. Um, <laughs> no problem. Yeah, I, I teach I, journalism. I'm probably going to get in trouble for that, too, for my students. They, they are great ways to learn journalism, actually. That's what um, my students watch or read. Yeah, yeah. So congratulations, and I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't confess to that. The truth is what it is. It's all good. They'll probably appreciate the acknowledgement. Yeah, are you omitting anything? My goodness, is is. I mean, I used to work in corporate strategy consulting for eight years. We didn't talk about that. That's what brought me out to Oxnard for that wow. wonderful Sebring top-down right. <laughs> right, right, right. slow ride, right. that, that low ride. And um, I do a lot of speaking. That's a, a one of the things, paid speaking, uh, sometimes volunteer speaking, uh, groups of students and kids. 
uh, colleges, but down to middle school, and then companies and their events and conferences. That's a big part of my life is communicating in that sort of venue. But the, the common thread in everything you describe is, is I communicate. Mm. I write, I am on camera, I'm on microphones, I'm on screens, I talk uh, on stages even. And I just, that's, that's my art, that's my thing. Uh, and I'm working on something that I've kind of done, but it hasn't been released yet, which introduced me to a lot of this beautiful state, uh, a PBS series called America Outdoors. Oh, wow. It's a, a TV show that I hosted. We filmed it in the summer of 2021. It will air uh, starting July 5th, 2022. And you know, two of the six episodes we filmed right here in California. We did an LA episode, we did a Death Valley episode. So that show has been uh, a joyful escape from my lockdown mode in the pandemic and a really good way to get in touch with a lot of the outdoors and, and the people of this country. You mentioned the common thread of communication in your work, yeah. but are there certain themes or I guess objectives that draw you to the work that you've done over the years? Yeah, I, um, I like to wrestle with what I call the easy stuff. You know, race, uh, technology and its role, democracy and its slow, excruciating death, um, <laughs> but potential rebirth as well. You know, death is also an opportunity for life and, and increasingly climate because I'm pretty attached to planet Earth. Uh, it turns out I really like it here. I'm <laughs> pro-Earth and I, I like my home. Pro-Earth is good. want to try to keep it. So, so my theme is, is taking some things that are often... Uh, complicated, difficult, or even unpleasant, and absorbing them and trying to translate, transfer them, convert them into something that is approachable, uh, insightful, comedic, and, and helps us learn or grow in some way. You started two podcasts in 2020. Practically, I had a lot of time in 2020, Stu. <laughs> a lot of time. <laughs> yeah, and you, you two, uh, practically at the same time, right? Yeah, uh, we're having a moment is the first one, and then how to citizen, yeah. uh, which continues. What inspired that work in that at that time, aside from the pandemic and having time on your hands? Yeah, I mean, we're having a moment is this mini series, six episodes about the summer of 2020, and, and what inspired it was rage and deep sadness at all the truth that was being revealed by COVID, by this state, my state now being on fire for multiple reasons, you know, from unrest uh, of a local kind of urban nature to unrest at, at a, an ecological and climate nature with our wildfires and, and all the history that was coming up in the moment that we're trying to contend with and how we use our resources. So trying to capture the, the, that moment was the goal. And so that's why that podcast doesn't continue, but it's a really good time capsule of, how, of the emotion of that. How the Citizen had been baking for a longer time and what inspired that was frustration with the journalism. It's your fault, Stu. Uh, it's your except fault. full responsibility. Yeah, I just, I was getting really exhausted of the stories that we are telling ourselves. Uh, they're very negative. They're, they accentuate the negative and don't really point us out of the various conundra that they highlight. And I was like, well, there's, there's good stuff happening. There's people working on, there's not just challenge in the world, there's people working on challenges and there's problems that are being resolved or at least addressed. And so How to Citizen was my attempt to um, inspire myself and remind myself that there's good and that we have power, that we the people have power, that we can use citizen as a verb and really show up and take charge uh, of our democracy and of this society and, and get, get our needs met together. 
So that's been a three season journey now of, of talking with people who are doing that and learning from them and then trying to give myself and our audience some, some things that, uh, that we can all try and do to citizen. Yeah. And part of why I wanted to talk with you was because of season three of mm. how to citizen, which concluded in December of 2021. Um, it focused on the impact of tech on citizening, as you put it. And, so it seemed like a uniquely California focus in that way. Um, it's not entirely California tech, but it's a lot of that. And um, obviously California and Silicon Valley have, you know, outsized influence on technology anywhere in the world. They've left their mark. Yeah, you might say that. <laughs> so it seemed like a uniquely California focus, I guess, you know, in that way. Did you sense that too? That how, how California industries and I guess California by extension, were influencing citizenship everywhere? Yeah, that's a great way to put it. That's a great way because you've just made a leap that a lot of us don't when we talk about technology. We're, we're increasingly understanding we're not talking about technology for its own sake. We're talking about reality. We're talking about relationships. We're talking about power and, and, and the environment that we live in. And technology facilitates or hinders that. And it's a, it's a medium through which we express all these other things that we really want. And you know, there had been a time, it feels like, and I'm old enough to remember, where tech felt like an industry. Oh, the technology industry. Now it's just the membrane hmm. you know, between yeah. us and everything else we actually want. Right. The, our government mediated by tech. Mm -hmm. Our love lives mediated by yeah. tech. And our economic lives and our parenting and like all of it. And so that's a that's a uniquely powerful and highly diffuse, you know, it's everywhere. There's nothing that we want that tech is not in between, you know, us and that thing. So who's building the tech? And are they building it in a way that helps us get our needs met? Are they building it in a way that makes it harder? I, I it can be argued that tech is making parenting much harder mm. than it used to be. Yeah. Children are stumbling across intense pornography as one extraordinary example that wasn't technically possible 30 years ago. Right. Somebody come across a dirty magazine in the woods or something, but not the kind of stuff that we're exposed to now. There's, there's great good that can come of it too, but it's, it's, everything becomes more extreme. And so California, having been so much of the engine creating the technologies that power our lives is powering our lives, including our civic lives. And then the choices that California businesses make impact people all over the world that don't know where California is. Mm -hmm. and, then, and then the added layer is not just, it's not just technology that gets made in California. It's how it gets made. It's how it gets funded, you know? And so what types of tools get built? Well, the ones that can accrue a ton of, returns to the investors, that, that's a really narrow set of incentives that end up affecting literally everything in the world. Right. And so when you think about power, when you think about kings of old, like King George didn't have that kind of power. The Catholic Church probably came close at its height mm -hmm. to having that sort of universal impact on every aspect of life. But you could keep secrets from the church. It's hard to keep secrets from tech. They know where we're at all the time. <laughs> right. 
I just I just have this vision of like, you know, Pope Jack Dorsey or something like that, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mark Zuckerberg, you know, just kind of uh, in the confession There's definitely booth. a synod of leadership that is, you know, sadly very small. And, and when you can have the leaders of a handful of companies, a literal handful, determining the majority, you know, for many of us, of our interactions. People have tried to, to detox and disconnect and boycott. I'm, I'm going to try to live without social media. I tried that one years ago. Yeah. Now people just try to narrow it to a company. <laughs> I'm going to try to live without yeah. Amazon. Good luck. Yeah. I'm going to try to live without Facebook, Meta, whatever. Good luck. Now, Twitter is honestly much easier to live without. They're actually not that big a company. And you're probably healthier for living without Twitter. You know, one of the episodes we did in season three was an early episode with a man named Eli Pariser. And he co-runs an organization, New Public. And his metaphor was really powerful. We need digital public spaces. Mm-hmm. We, we all are living in a bunch of digital private spaces. And it, to live offline the way we live online would mean that we conducted every part of our life at the mall. Mm-hmm. That's what we're doing now. We're doing everything at the mall. We're engaging in politics at the mall. We're engaging in love and religion and spiritual pursuits at the mall, wellness at the mall, acupuncture at the mall, parenting, everything's happening in the mall. Yeah. And the mall was not built for that. The mall was built for commerce. And that's cool. Commerce powers a lot of things. It enables us to get food and all kinds of other needs met. But it shouldn't necessarily be where we do everything. And the people who design the mall shouldn't necessarily be the ones designing the town square. Mm, yeah. The public library, the assembly hall. That's, those are different functions needing different types of designers, different types of people. Uh, and so we've had software engineers doing social engineering. They're, they're punching well past their weight there. Yeah. The moment that you chronicled in the series, we're having a moment, the yeah. movement against racism for social justice. How did California factor into that moment? <laughs> oh, man. Um, mightily, because I was living here at the time. Um, because I found some positive examples of how we could citizen, you know, how the citizen was born out of we're having a moment. And, and what I participated in and witnessed with the People's Budget LA was so inspiring. It was, it was the residents of, a, of an area asking, how's my money being spent? Saying, this is how I want my money to be spent. And then lobbying their elected officials to try to shift the needle, shift that distribution. It's an ongoing process. You know, one summer, one round of that doesn't fix everything. But as much as California has been a source of uh, innovation that have led to problems, hello, insurrection, uh, (laughs) and facilitating, you know, white supremacy and extremism of all kinds, Mm -hmm. it's also been a laboratory for some really powerful civic engagement and and community-based solutions, the mutual aid stuff that happens in this state. Really, really, really inspiring. So that moment, um, for me, California was featured prominently on both sides of the equation. Right. Your book, How to Be Black, was published 10 years ago this month. It was a big hit at the time. Happy, oh my goodness, you're right. Happy 10 happy years. Happy anniversary to me. Yeah, congratulations. I didn't <laughs> bring a cake. You. I'm sorry, man. Um, That's all right. I'll get some. <laughs> it was, you know, it was a bestseller. It was part memoir. 
part social criticism. And today, parts of it seem pretty prescient. Like it's it totally snuffs out the myth of post-racial America. Uh, four years before Donald Trump came on the scene, like as a, as a major political player, uh, it skewers white privilege. Uh, it has that great section on the proposed uh, white student union at your high school yeah. in D.C. Uh, how do you feel like the book holds up today? What do you think it nailed? What do you think it missed? Well, every hammer that I swung in the book nailed, crushed it, but I didn't <laughs> swing at everything. That is the problem. Um, I think, yeah, I think it, I think it really hit on a lot of the things you just said, especially, I mean, in my world at the time of putting the book together, which was, you know, 2010 is when I really started and I'm socializing, I'm interviewing people and I'm kind of in my cohort in my head. I'm like, here's what I think being black feels like and here's what being in America feels like. And this post-racial thing doesn't feel true at all. Right. It's just like we're jumping the gun here, people. We're getting way, way out ahead of our our skis, which is something we can use here in California because of the diverse <laughs> ecosystem <laughs> we talked about earlier. But, so whatever metaphor California offers, we were we were out ahead of it. And um, and now we're living in the truth of that. There, there, I don't think there's anyone on any side of any aisle that would say, oh, yeah, we're totally beyond race in this country. Right. Uh, if anything, we're talking about it even more, sometimes more violently and, and nastily than before. But we, it's not resolved. So I think I feel really good about that. I did not do any conversation about uh, sexuality, sexual identity, uh, gender identity. There was no real acknowledgement of LGBTQ and, and black identity, uh, uh, of trans and black identity. I mean, I was behind on that or certainly as behind as most people at the time. But when you look 10 years later, to me, that stands out as, like, oh, there's nothing in this book about that. Um, and what else? I like that I tried, and I think succeeded in a comedic sense, having not just black people in the conversation, you know, about race and, and having... Uh, a white person talk about race, it would have been interesting to get, you know, a brown perspective, whether that's like Daisy Brown or Latin Brown. Even in a book about blackness, there is such connectivity of how to be black that is affected by and has affected cultures globally. You know, the, the Indian subcontinent, as one example, you know, highly influenced by hip hop in certain ways. That would have been fun to talk about mm -hmm. and open people's eyes to sort of a black diasporic view that I hinted at in, in one of the people I talked with, Derek Ashong, who grew up partly in Dubai, partly in Ghana, partly in the US. But there's so much more richness to it. And the Afro-Latino concept, the hybrid, sure. you know, blackness plus sure, sure, sure. Um, that intersects with so many other identities. Uh, I could have and, and would do more if I were doing the book today. Yeah, well, you know, you've got about 10 days uh, from this interview. You can update <laughs> it for the 10th anniversary edition. I mean, you know, in fact, you know, you you do have this, this, uh, I mean, Black History Month is coming up and you have this yeah. this really funny section at the beginning of the book about ways to celebrate Black History Month. Um, and this episode will, I guess, coincide with Black History Month. So is, is there anything you wanted to add or re-up for people to think about, in all sincerity, to kind of recognize Black History Month in 2022, 10 years after oh. the book? Yeah, I don't, I don't even remember some of the... I think I said some very uh, intentionally foolish things about how to celebrate Black History Month in that book. Very you have satirical. this great line in there about how if you are racist, just take a break, take the month off, and then you can come back ready and fully charged to marginalize in March. 
Oh my goodness. I wrote that. I really put that in print. This is amazing. It's great. It's so That's a, I should reread the book freshly, like fully. Sometimes I do an excerpt here or there, oh, but thank you for reminding me. So funny. I legitimately laughed at myself uh, across a decade. That's a, that's a sign of a It's good. a sustainable joke. I think it's all up. about sustainability, Stu. All about sustainability. It better so, be yeah, in California. This, for Black History Month 2022. Um I I, I probably have so many wishes. I want people uh, who are black to to really celebrate, you know, and 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 take a break. <laughs> you don't have to answer any questions this month. You can kick your feet back, take naps whenever you feel like it, and just like just put it on Black History Month. This is my Black History nap. Mm-hmm. I'm, if you're late to a meeting, that's that's good. Like it's it's CP time. It's your time. You're reclaiming your time. So you do that and flex this month. And, and, and more seriously, I do hope for black people, for us, to, to find things that make us happy and whole and feel full and, and really indulge in those because they're not indulgences, they're necessities. Mm. And there's so much narrative in our lives about struggle and fighting for something. And that will and must continue. We also should enjoy some of the fruits of that fight. Uh, whether it's naps, you know, or meditation or amazing food or, or quality time with people or dancing like nobody's watching. Though people are watching because we're pretty good at it. But, you know, not for performance, just for joy. Yeah. So pursue joy. And for, for people who are not black in this month, um, I hope you can feel a sense of connection, uh, respect, wonder, you know, and, and, and really uh, some of the shared history. I think the point of Black History Month for me is not like a separate, although that those people did those things for them, good for them, <laughs> so proud of them over there. It's like we're all still connected. Mm-hmm. And so if you can appreciate, recognize, and see that this history is all of ours, that we've all benefited and, and suffered both. You know, the suffering isn't just, you know, by Black people isn't just of black people, like our whole society suffers when any of us suffer. So if you can start to feel that yourself and also celebrate, you know, feel that too, then I I hope it becomes a a bridge month and not a dividing moment, yet another opportunity to be divided about something. So I invite you to, uh, to contemplate in that way and celebrate and feel, you know, with us in that. So you're also involved in a publication that recently launched called Puck. What is that and what is your involvement? Puck is a new media startup. Uh, it's, it's staffed and founded and owned primarily by former journalists. You called me one of those. I still don't consider myself that, but I appreciate the honor. There's a lot of reporting in How to Citizen. I mean, I don't, a lot of interviews, <laughs> a lot of uh, structure there. I mean, that's, that's journalism. Man, I'm just talking to people and recording it. You know, you want to call that reporting? Fine. Cool. And I'm reporting. But uh, Puck seeks to, to cover uh, the U.S. in particular from the perspective of various power centers and, and kind of get behind the scenes of Washington and, and the political power center of New York as a proxy for the financial power center of, of the Bay Area uh, for technology and of Hollywood, Los Angeles for the storytelling and the entertainment industry. So that's how we've started. It may grow to be more. I think there's eight-ish of us, you know, writerly type people, plus a staff of operations, social, business, sales, etc. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a subscription-based model. So you pay for some quality stuff. I show up and I write. 
and I do some long form writing and I do some deep diving. Uh, as much as I talk, writing was actually one of my first you know, artistic expressions. Mm -hmm. And so Puck has given me a chance to go long on some things, to talk beyond the, the social media caption, the, the IG you know, tag and the caption, right. and, and then to have some interaction with the, with the subscribers in terms of addressing their direct needs or integrating some of their ideas into the pieces that I put out. So it's, it's been fun, and I love the idea of worker-owned entities. You know, my mom was always encouraging me to build my own thing, so it's exciting to be building something with you know, other entrepreneurially-minded uh, people. What do you and your co-founders want Puck to reveal about power in California in particular? I can't speak for everybody. Uh, so I'll speak for me. I want us to reveal a number of things. I remember f my early visits coming out to do Hollywood stuff. I was just shocked at uh, how business was conducted in the entertainment industry, which is to say not well, you know, not respectfully, not even fiscally soundly. You know? and, and, and the people I know who worked there were, were taking all kinds of abuse. I'm like, Why is that acceptable? Because of power. Because of somebody who has it seemingly more than the rest of us and others who want to be close to it, so they tolerate the behavior. We see it in the former president. We see it in abusive households. Like, it's a human signature move. Um, but it's especially in high doses in certain parts of, of the entertainment industry. So I, I want Puck to, to talk about that, to reveal more of that. Uh, I, I want some of the, the writing, and I've been learning this, as well to get behind the mystery of business leaders and innovators and how decisions get made at companies like Meta, for example, and talk about what's really going on. There's a lot of PR that comes out of, of entertainment leadership and of technology leadership, but behind the scenes, it's just a, it's a messy group of people mm -hmm. fumbling their way through, yeah. sometimes having great ideas, sometimes just being very lucky and sometimes making terrible, terrible decisions. And so I want, you know, what Puck is up to and a bunch of other people who are doing real good journalism to, to remove some of the mystery and the mask behind that. Because I think we end up in a worshipful, uh, deferential position with respect to that form of power, Hollywood power or Silicon Valley power. And they're just people like us. Yeah, Most of them ain't no smarter than anybody else. <laughs> they're doing jobs. They're showing up for work. They're, they're reacting to incentives. And, uh, and the more we demystify that, and like the more approachable it seems, and the more the rest of us feel like we can participate and, and co-create our world, uh, not just be subject to someone else's you know, image of what they want the world to be. Yeah. Um, lofty goals, lofty goals. But that's, <laughs> that's, that's my honest uh, aspiration for some of the work of, of a place like Puck. Cool. Well, you're on your way. Um, yeah. What do you think the biggest challenge that California faces is? And how can that challenge be surmounted? Mm, the biggest challenge facing California. California is a microcosm. We, we have a lot of wealth. A lot. Like obscene, just obscene amounts of money generated and operating in this state. And, and we have shameful levels of homelessness, houselessness, people really struggling, and it's just getting worse. That is unsustainable. 
it's one indicator of, of an inequality gap. There are many other things we could point to, but that's, that's literally visible and, uh, and, and avoidable. I don't think there's simple answers to the challenge. But for a state that talks so much about being a leader and a trendsetter and being the home of innovation and storytelling that we pump out across the whole world, we are so behind on meeting this basic need. And you can't be super excited about your cloud-based technical infrastructure and the fact that you get teenagers addicted to their phones and you can't house your own people. Some group out of Berkeley uh, started to mandate, you know, some initiative out of, of the city of Berkeley, no gas lines into new homes, hmm. right? For climate purposes. Right. We want to limit emissions from gas. And so everybody use electric cooktop. I'm as climate forward as almost anybody you'll find. It's probably a good idea, but that home-based natural gas use is like 10% of our emissions. Right. Berkeley, you can tell me how I cook in my home when you can provide homes to all your people, right? And I say that to us as Californians. Yeah. There's some basic needs we're not meeting. We, we can do so much better. And, and we have some extremes in the state that are sometimes lauded, but we're missing a big middle yeah. uh, of that. So that, I think that is a big, is a, if not the biggest, is one of the biggest problems. What do we do about it? There's books on it. <laughs> you know, um, I, I think there's some controls we put around speculation with respect to housing. You know, as a former New Yorker, I, I saw a lot of empty apartments over there. And I'm feeling some of that with the short-term rental stuff happening here. A lot of housing units, not a lot of families living in them. Mm -hmm. Because everything's got to return money. Because people got to work multiple gig jobs because we don't pay enough. Our health systems, like, it's all connected. You know, I don't think we just fix housing by focusing on housing. Uh, and, and having people have a sense of ownership. I'll leave the solution with one solid example uh, Noni Sessions, a woman in the Bay Area who we featured on the show, runs a, a cooperative, uh, a housing and land cooperative up in Oakland that allows the people to be more in charge of what happens in their neighborhood by owning it. And it's not a, it's not a particularly new idea, but when we have a sense of ownership, even if we're renting, you know, we have a sense of ownership, we invest more. We want that thing to grow and be better. And when we prioritize not just financial return, but like happiness, social connectivity, quality of life, we might find that, that the money does come later or that we, we optimize for something else. So, Yeah, I, I love the idea of you know, telling Berkeley, you can tell me about the gas I use in my house when you actually have enough houses for everybody. That's, I, I like that kind of clap back. That's good. I said that to my wife the other day. She's like, Ooh, that's a good burn. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I'm not trying to like single Berkeley out, but also like, and I say we as much as possible because I can get caught up in, you know, some innovative edge policy and miss the great gaping maw that yeah. is like people don't have a place to reliably, securely and safely call home. We, we, we got we to gotta fix that. It's a, it's a, a key pillar of our whole society. Our society's Jenga blocks, you know, and we start removing <laughs> these things. It, it comes falling down pretty easily. Yeah. Final question. We end every episode with the same question for all of our guests. Who is your favorite Californian, past or present, and why? 
Mm. Okay. I'll tell you my train of thought. It's a short train. I was like, what do I associate with California? I went to, you know, some music, some TV shows. I went to the Black Panther Party. What a California innovation. Huey P. Newton, Bobby Seale, the whole crew. It wasn't just them, of course. But that was born here in California. I'm proud of that. I'm not from here, but I claim it now. I have a California Republic sticker on one of my bags, that bear, you know, yeah. girl, let's get it. And, um, and what, what that organization was about is some of what we've been speaking on. It, it, it wasn't really about flashing guns in the street or shooting cops. It was about helping people meet their basic needs. Housing, food, education, health. And when those needs are met, we feel much less of a need to act out in other ways. So um, to, to Huey Newton, one of my favorite Californians, to the Black Panther Party, one of my favorite uh, California innovations and gifts you know, to, to larger America and to the world for people who've been you know, fighting to get their basic needs met and, and for their sense of freedom forever. You know, they're, they're one of the great freedom-fighting organizations and California should be proud to have burst you know, that organization and those people at that time. Baratunde Thurston, thank you so much for being on What is California? It's been great having you here. Thank you for inviting me to help answer this question. All right. There you have it. Baratunde Thurston, everybody. Thank you to Baratunde for dropping by What is California for this episode. It's great talking to him. I hope you'll check out his podcast, How to Citizen, as well as We're Having a Moment. Have a look at the website Puck, where he's a founding partner, and his book, How to Be Black, 10 Years Later, holds up, in my humble opinion. So thank you again, Baratunde, and uh, look forward to talking again soon. And thank you, too, for listening. So great to have you here. What is California is hosted, edited, and produced by me, Stu Van Aersdale. Our theme music is by Sounds Supreme. You can find us on Twitter at WhatCalifornia and subscribe to the free Substack newsletter at whatiscalifornia.substack.com. Again, that will get you a podcast in your inbox every Thursday and a fresh round of weekend links every Friday morning. You can support What Is California on Patreon. If you'd like to chip in a few shekels to keep the cloud servers running, keep the headquarters cat fed. Meow. We're at patreon.com slash whatiscalifornia. Appreciate any support. Thank you so much for that. And if you have questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, love notes, hate mail, you name it, I'm at hello at whatiscalifornia.com. Drop me a line. Love to hear from you anytime. Of course, I'd also love it if you subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you liked What Is California, please consider rating and reviewing this podcast on Apple Podcasts. It helps new listeners find us. That is a wrap on this episode. Look forward to catching you next week. Until then, remember, as always, keep your eye on the bear.